Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace, where we talk in depth with individuals struggling with mental health. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and we hope that by sharing these experiences, you will gain insight into your own mental health and be inspired to take the necessary steps to live your very best life. My guest today is Dr. Claire Kaplan, a writer, teacher, artist, and victim advocate. Prior to her retiring in June 2020, Dr. Kaplan was an adjunct faculty member at the University of Virginia in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Department. She served as Program Director of Gender, Violence, and Social Change at UVA's Maxine Platzer Lynn Women's Center and was instrumental in advancing LGBTQ equality at the university. Claire lives in Central Virginia with her wife of 31 years and three cats. I asked Dr. Kaplan to be my guest today in honor of Pride Month to talk about her career as an educator and advocate for women and gay rights. Welcome Dr. Kaplan to the podcast. And do you mind if I call you Claire? Absolutely, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, let's start with an easy one. Did you grow up in Virginia? I did not. I grew up in Southern California. Okay, and what brought you to Virginia? Well, I moved out here in the fall of 89. I was hired to run a nonprofit. It was a national nonprofit in Washington, D.C. And my wife, who was my partner at the time, we were not yet married, um, also had gotten a job uh, in Richmond. So we looked at the map and picked Fredericksburg and moved there. When did you first realize that you were interested in gender studies? And was there a particular event or person that inspired your work? Well, really, my earliest interests were around women's rights because I grew up in a period where um, the women's movement was getting started. And uh, my mother um, was going through her own struggles. And when I was in, uh, in like the late 60s, she and my dad separated and she was going through the kinds of struggles that women did have then where they had no access to credit and they um, getting a divorce was considered a shameful thing, even in California. And, um, and I watched her um, go through all kinds of difficulties. Uh, my dad wasn't very willingly paying child support and he was being pissed off and, and she couldn't get a credit card uh, for anything. And there were no, you know, this is pre MasterCard Visa. It was just a gas card, you know, cards for every individual place. She couldn't even get a gasoline credit card. So yeah. just seeing all that stuff happen turned me into a feminist. Uh, but I also came from a very progressive family. Um, my grandparents were socialists, so I, I kind of came by it honestly, I guess. That's a good way to come by it. Um, I want to ask sort of about feminist and to follow up on that, what you were talking about, and gender um, rights. Are they the same or different, or is it just the terminology? Well, there's certainly a huge overlap. Uh, it's not quite the same, because when you're talking about gender rights, you're talking about um, the rights people have uh, in regarding their gender identities, their gender expression, uh, and uh, that is inclusive of all genders. Uh, whereas uh, I think feminism is really pretty inclusive of all of that as well, but there are some differences. There's different threads in the feminist movement regarding that. Um, and 
the focus is more specifically on women um, and girls in the feminist movement, even though men are certainly included in that as well. When did you start teaching at UVA or the University of Virginia for those who do not live here? Well, um, I first started actually, I was hired to run what was then called the Sexual Assault Education Office um, in the Women's Center. That was in the fall of 91. And um, I stayed in that job, as you described, until June of 2020. And the, the title changed over the years because we kept changing it to make it fit things. But um, I started teaching um, through WGS uh, in, I think it was either 98 or 99. I've kind of lost track. And I was co-teaching with um, my colleague from um, the Shelter for Help and Emergency, the executive director, Cardi Lomanac. We um, co-taught um, a class on gender violence and social justice and taught it con pretty continuously with a few breaks here and there. Um, this past fall, um, she opted out because she was dealing with running the shelter and the pandemic, which made things very complicated. So I taught the course on my own um, through Zoom, which was interesting. But um, I don't know. I'm now adjunct faculty. And um, so um, I could potentially continue to teach through WGS. In what uh, way do you see women's studies evolving or um, similar to the black studies or other programs that focus on ethnic and racial groups? Well, I don't know that I can address all those issues, but I, I would say that in a sense, it's the purpose of what started as women's studies and now is often called women and gender studies um, is to amplify the voices of those who were not recognized in the academy. And the same is true of the ethnic studies programs as well. Uh, and so, for example, we've seen changes over the years uh, in uh, what is considered the canon, if you could call it that, um, the sort of essential readings, for example, in English. What people read is much more inclusive these days. And that's because of the influence of these, uh, the work of scholars in women, gender, um, ethnic studies programs. Uh, also, many um, colleges and universities require some kind of course uh, for on the part of students that addresses some of those issues. So that's a change as well. Uh, I think that um, there's still, we still have a long way to go. That, that with, with women and gender studies, the one thing that's been interesting in recent years is um, a recognition that the category of woman isn't necessarily as hard and fast as was considered in the past. And so um, we can um, be more inclusive of, for example, transgender people, but gen transgender women, it's specifically when it comes to women's studies. Uh, but gender studies is inclusive of all people, whether they're gender non-conforming or um, asexual or transgender, uh, there's a whole range of categories of people that we, we weren't talking about you know, 20 and 30 years ago. Exactly. Um, that brings me to another thought, and what I've read is two in five LGBTQ youth in the United States have seriously considered suicide in 2020. 
uh, based on a survey of the Trevor Project, what do you right. think needs to be done um, in order to change that? Well, one thing that um, there was a recent study I read that indicated that when um, parents are open to talking with their children about their identities and are open to uh, uh, kids to, to accepting and, and embracing their children who may not fit the cisgender heterosexual norm, um, they don't tend to, they don't have those feelings of suicidality and depression. So it starts in the home and um, it can extend out because of course bullying is a, is a big factor with this too. But uh, when parents embrace their children, you know, whatever their sexual identities are and their gender identities are, um, that really amplifies and, and strengthens their sense of self-esteem. And you don't see that. I think that, that of course, the isolation um, caused by the pandemic has really made things worse. Uh, we see this, we saw this in our own students, um, college students, of course, who were able to live fairly freely um, and be themselves if they lived in a residential setting or were away from home in college as undergraduates and they had to move back home to an environment that they had to go back in the closet or they were, um, even if they weren't entirely closeted, they were not in a, a safe environment. And I'm aware of actually of some students that I know who actually had to move out of their parents' houses and go live with a friend during this pandemic because it was not safe for them. When did you realize that you were gay, and what uh, was that like when you came out? Well, I, I wasn't entirely, I was pretty cut off from my uh, sexual, sexuality, generally speaking. I'm a survivor of, of child abuse, and so I just didn't want to even go there in any way. Um, and I was pretty cut off from it until I, um, you know, started getting some therapy around it. And... I started to think, well, maybe I was identified as lesbian and I, that I was lesbian, but then I thought, well, um, I don't want to be, I don't want to come out as a lesbian until I figured out if I'm really not heterosexual. And for me, that was more about, I want to be, express my sexuality because of the positive, because I want what I wanted, not because of what I wasn't. And if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I wish more people would sort of have that positive look at it. Um, I was lucky in that I was um, in my 20s. My friend circle, even my family, I guess, but my friend circle in particular um, was not only very supportive and um, embracing, but also I had a number of lesbian and gay friends. So they were just sort of waiting for me to figure it out. I think it was really what was going on more than anything. Do you think like celebrities like Ellen have had a major difference in how families are talking about it and being less judgmental of the kids that are coming out or questioning their sexuality? I do think so. I think Ellen did a huge service um, to kids across the world, you know, but especially in the United States uh, by coming out when she did. Um, and any any uh, public figure who comes out is saying, you know, here it is, it's okay, it's okay. And the Trevor Projects, you know, it, it gets better. The, the Trevor Project did a huge thing too. I mean, there's so many ways that 
that the climate has changed uh, in this country and in, I would say, um, a great number of countries over the years. In some countries, it's still terrible and um, people are killed and arrested and it's still illegal in many places. Um, but uh, things are getting better. Do you use things in the news or in television programs as part of your teaching? Yes, well, of course, in, yes, bringing in current events. In fact, I, we often, um, and I have often asked my students to bring in, it's like they have to bring in one current article or two current articles. Um, and because um, we give them a lot of background, you know, so something that's current is really important. Um, I'm not sure that a lot of people read newspapers anymore. And so telling them they have to, you know, look around and keep, keep themselves abreast of current accurate news is, is kind of important. Um, so yes, they, I do ask them to, to um, look at what's happening today. In your classes, since it is called Women's Studies, at least currently, it may be changing the name of programs moving forward, but what percentage of female to male ratio are in your classes? Well, first, I mean, UVA, it's Women, Gender, and Sexualities. So it's a department now, so that's, um, that's the name of it. Um, and that's the trend. Um, as far as per, uh, percentages, every semester is different. I mean, I'm still primarily teaching the gender violence class. I always have men in it, but it's, you know, they maybe I'll have a big number would be five out of the 30 <laughs> that I have. But then that's by um, gender presentation. I don't know that they're, you know, I often have gender non-conforming students or I could have trans students in my class and I'm unaware if they don't identify themselves in some way that we ask pronouns um, what their um, gender identity is. So I could have more, but I don't know it. From what I've read, you are a big part in creating this department. Um, that must make you feel pretty good about it. Um, who are some of your role models? Well, first, just a little correction. I, I played a big part in, in the women's center, but not in women, gender, and sexuality studies, which was, you know, a separate thing. Um, but I was been a, I my primary job was working at the women's center. So since it's early years, um, my role models. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't have too many. Um, and the kinds of people I find as role models um, aren't necessarily um, LGBTQ plus. I would say. Uh, uh, people who are sticking their necks out for social justice are the kinds of people who are my role models. So Stacey Abrams, for example, or AOC, um, uh, people who aren't afraid to um, challenge the status quo, whatever that means. Um, in terms of the, the queer community, uh, I always admired Martina Navratilova because she she also was a groundbreaker and she paid the price of coming out early uh, and uh, even perhaps more than Ellen did in a way, but um, she still was successful. When you say groundbreaking people, people not afraid to challenge the norm, um, you started at UVA teaching way back when and I've always looked at university as a little more um, conservative 
So yeah. what was it like for you as a, as a gay woman coming out within that environment, the academic environment? Um, I don't know that it had any, I don't know what impact it may have had on me, honestly. Um, it probably did, but I was unaware of it because I worked in such a supportive environment that I was insulated in a sense. Um, all the people I knew were either LGBTQ plus or they were feminist, you know, folks who worked in the in that area. And those are the people I socialized with. So um, it wasn't um, it wasn't too bad in that sense. Uh, the university was very conservative. And I think the students experienced a lot of um, homophobia and heterosexism. Um, I recall some really, um, some really bad incidents happening, both on grounds uh, and out in the community. I recall a, a man who was um, beaten and um, left for dead, and locked in a trunk, and there were some really bad things that happened in the community. So um, it was definitely going on, but um, the way it affected me directly was more in the lack of rights or benefits lack of rights in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the lack of benefits that would have made me equal uh, to my heterosexual colleagues at the university. And a lot of that had to do with the state of Virginia because it's a state university. So there are some things that the administration wanted to do, for example, um, allowing us to have our partners join um, the recreation facilities like straight people could do, um, straight married people anyway, and health benefits, um, those sorts of things we couldn't have for a very long time, not until marriage was legalized in Virginia. And when was that? Do you remember what year that was? Uh, the legalization of marriage was uh, in 2014, late 2014. And then ERA passed in Virginia not... Last year. Last year. So do you remember where you were and how you felt about that? I'm sure you were elated. Well, I recall where I was, but um, I was like, finally, hooray. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, so it's still not ratified officially yeah. by Congress since it passed the deadline. It'd be interesting because I march in those ERA marches. You may have too, you know, back in the, in the uh, 70s and the 80s. I went to so many marches for the ERA. Did you ever fear, because you, know, you mentioned bullying, did you ever fear for being hurt because you were gay or that you were an advocate for women's rights and all that? No, I never felt in fear. I was never threatened or, you know, I never got hate mail, anything like that. I was a little worried in my neighborhood. I live outside Charlottesville, but I found people were, you know, they were sort of a live and let live kind of group of people and my neighbors were friendly enough and one neighbor her daughter became friends with my daughter I adopted a child and um, uh, she was like cool with it didn't have seem to have much of an issue um, so I think that uh, if people did have any um, concerns or discrimi discriminatory feelings whatever it might be they didn't share it with me and I have a ton of friends in my neighborhood now, and it's not an issue. So, um, so I personally was not impacted by that. I always wondered if I would, honestly, because I was a little more visible than others. But I didn't see it happen. You mentioned adopting your daughter. 
Did you fear that as a gay couple that that was going to go against your adopting? Yes, um, we adopted internationally from Russia and we had to hide all that. So, you know, I think they asked the adoption agency about it. But the person I was working with here in Virginia knew and she was like totally on board. So she just, you know, said, oh, no, no, they're just very good friends. <laughs> they live together to share a house. You know, that's how she framed it, something like that. What would you tell other individuals that are struggling with their sexual identity and coming out today, what advice would you give them? I would say um, the most important thing is to come out to yourself. So getting support through therapy, find a gay affirmative therapist. It doesn't have to be a gay therapist or a lesbian therapist. It just has to be someone who's affirming. That is really important. And and if you get the sense this person is not, fire them, basically. that's They're working for you, so get rid of them. Um, find someone who is. And it's easy enough to find people who are. Go on the internet, go to reliable organizations to find um, people who are um, okay. And even, you know, Psychology Today has, has that in their uh, criteria, so you can find someone somehow. And, um, and if there's not a therapist near you, go online and do, you know, this sort of online therapy. Um, so that's first. Coming out to yourself is the most important thing. And learning to love yourself and accept yourself as you are. After that is when one would consider coming out to other people. And if you don't think your family's going to be supportive, that can wait. You know, it's hard, but find people who are okay. Find people who are your friends who, um, you know, it's scary to come out. As I experienced, pretty much everybody else already knows you're the last one to know. So, um, and once you do, they go, yeah, we knew that a long time ago. That's often the reaction people have. Or, yeah, we were waiting. We were waiting for you to figure this out. So, um, but go slow. It's okay. You don't have to rush into it. If you live in a community that's not supportive um, and you can't move, then you have, you know, the wonderful thing about the internet is that you can find support that way. Everybody's um, journey is different. Yeah. Uh, I want to end on, um, we've got about two and a half minutes left. Okay. And I want to talk about the aspect of at a university and mental health. Do you feel that most universities throughout our country are providing enough mental health support for all people? Well, the answer generally is no, and that's not necessarily the fault of higher education institutions and not all are alike so the first thing is I have to say is um, if we're talking about faith-based institutions um, if they're you know a lot of them aren't um, at least not on this topic but one reason why the answer is no is because there's only so much money for so many therapists and the demand of for counseling by um, college students and counseling centers has increased tremendously and uh, they're just is the staff um, and in a way it almost never can be so but if a, if a uh, counseling center at a school um, is able to refer people out when they run out of room then that's a good thing um, <clears throat> the other piece is that uh, many have uh, affirming staff or LGBTQ um, staff 
as counselors. And so that's another issue. Um, they're, you know, they're sort of ahead of the game in some ways from just your average community. So um, young people are coming out younger. They're coming out in high school. They're coming out in middle school. Um, the environment has changed so much. So they're already out when they arrive on campus. Uh, and so what they expect from counselors is far different than what, say, when we were young, you know, and, and struggling to come out um, what we expected from people. So um, in general, the, the world of, of psychotherapy has changed to be far more um, affirming. And uh, it's really important if you don't feel that um, you can find somebody like that at your college counseling center, then ask them for a referral. And if there's not, if there's a women's center there or an LGBTQ center, um, they often can refer people to community psychologists who might operate on a sliding scale or take, um, you know, whatever you can give um, to pay for sessions. Well, Claire, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast and providing some unique insights into women's equality and LGBTQ rights. And to those listening, I hope you have a great day and here's to good mental health. And remember, every cloud has a silver lining. Thank you.